Good morning. Um, for those of you who don't know, my name is Ron. For those of you who do, I'm sorry. <clears throat> I uh, have been part of Central some about 15 years now, and uh, when I came here, we were uh, a church of about, I don't know, 250, something like that. Uh, and we were here in Chilliwack. We had two services. We had what we called the Classics service, uh, and we had the Bridges service. And uh, our determination was to make sure that we loved each other well and manifested the gospel. And for whatever reason, God saw fit to pour out his favor on us, and over time we grew. Uh, we ended up going back to two, to, uh, two similar services, and then from there, uh, we moved out into Agassiz and uh, uh, took on a campus out there, and now we've expanded. We have four campuses, and we have a fifth that's on its way, and it is an amazing thing to watch. It's an amazing thing to be part of. Uh, and, but what it takes is a determination. It takes a conviction that God's at work. And so I want to ask you just a couple of questions as we uh, launch here. You, you're stuck with me this morning preaching the word to you. Um, what, what are the marks of a dynamic church? Uh, by show of hands, how many think it's preaching that makes, makes it a dynamic church? <laughs> Matt's not here. It's okay. <laughs> how about the worship? Is it worship that makes a church dynamic? Nah, and not preaching either. I, I preached here for eight years as the lead and it didn't do deadly squat. <clears throat> How about program? Program makes a dynamic church? No. It's, it's also not the leadership, I want to be really clear, and we have fantastic leadership in this place. You know what, what constitutes a dynamic church or a church that lives under the conviction of its faith? It's this one ingredient, the key ingredient. It's a church that's on mission. It's a radical conviction or a radical belief, a radical faith on the part of the believers, you, the body of Christ, and us, the pastoral team, this uh, deeply profound and, and complete conviction that Jesus is the only hope for the world. So when we live under that, it changes everything about who we are. See, it's that truth or that perspective, that conviction, that sort of faith that transforms everything about who we, who we are and informs everything we do. Because faith under conviction will do radical things to see people one for Christ. That's what makes a dynamic church that really believes and then lives out the gospel. I, I was in Toronto this week. Um, you can forgive me later, but I was in Toronto this week. And I had the privilege of uh, rubbing shoulders with pastors from back east around Canada. <coughs> Excuse me. And I uh, bumped into some people from the Move In movement. Uh, it's a group, uh, a church group in Toronto, the greater Toronto area, that believe that God's called them to live as clusters of Christians in the least reached uh, urban areas of Toronto. So these are men and women, families, who move out of suburbia and move into the poorest areas in Toronto in clusters of three to five families. And they do it because they have in mind that God has called them to, to be an incarnational presence, not to preach the gospel, but to live the gospel and to proclaim Jesus in their, in their local area. What a crazy thing to do. Can you imagine moving out of your home and moving into, say, the, the downtown east side of Vancouver? Because you want to incarnate Christianity? You want to incarnate Christ? 
Uh, you've got a church in, in uh, Surrey. Uh, it's called the Village Church with Mark Clark. They also have a similar kind of mindset, little different strategy. Um, I call them the village people, but apparently that's derogatory. I, I don't know. But anyways, they now have six locations. They are South Surrey. They're in the middle of Surrey. They're in uh, uh, South Langley, North Langley, uh, Coquitlam, and now they're out in uh, Calgary as well. Um, and they just do the strangest thing. They, um, they, have, they hold services in theaters, which in and of itself isn't that strange, except that they uh, video in the worship. Like, it's, it's video worship. And the preaching is also video. But the, but the theaters pack out. And people are coming to Christ. And when you talk to Mark, he will say, you know, would we rather have live preaching? Yes, but... We're more committed to seeing people come to Christ, and this is how God's called us to do it. Strange thing. Then you have churches that, that do strange things like, like multiply and plant campuses all over the place. I know one church I've heard of that uh, started in one location has now moved to four and is soon going to launch its fifth location. You may have heard of it. It's called Central. What a crazy thing to do. I want to be honest with you, it was much easier back in the day when I was lead here just to do church here. That's, we called it 46100, here on Chilliwack Central Road. And yet God in his sovereignty said, no, I actually have something different for you. I want you to reach the entire Fraser Valley and see it transformed by the gospel for the glory of God and the good of all people. That's the mission that God has given us. We're one church in four locations, soon to be five, Determined to do difficult things because of the conviction that only Jesus saves, only Jesus transforms, only Jesus heals, and only Jesus restores. You know, it, it, weird things. I mean, we, we've grown in size and things have changed and we're big here and I, we have 42 million children. And we have, by the way, we have a commission trying to figure out how that happens. We've almost got it figured out. Our youth group has grown like crazy. A kids' ministry continues to grow, and not just here, and in all the other campuses as well. With that comes um, increased responsibilities and, and increased commitments. When I started here uh, 14, 15 years ago, Carol, you might remember, our budget was about $315,000, I think, right? Something like that? Something like that. Uh, it wasn't all that big. It was a really good salary. Our budget now is 2.2. That's what we're projecting for this next year. 2.2 million, just so we're clear. And for some, that may seem ridiculous. But for others, it's, it's an understanding that that's what it takes in order to reach the eastern Fraser Valley with the gospel. I want to look at a passage this morning uh, with you out of Mark chapter 2. And, and here's, my, here's my thesis this morning. We have this radical conviction... This, this, that faith under conviction will do radical things in order to affect a radical encounter with Jesus. And that really shouldn't be all that surprising. It really should be the norm for the Christian church. We're called to be radical in our expression of our faith. After all, we have this crazy belief, and, and I don't think it's crazy, that we have this conviction that ultimately only Jesus can bring healing to people's lives. We have this radical belief that God only forgives sins, and we also believe that Jesus is the only way to God. See, here's the thing. We alone, in Jesus, have the cure for all of humanity's ailments. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Do you believe that? 
Do you believe that Jesus is the answer? Check the pulse of the person next to you. <laughs> Do you believe that? Yes. You see, we're so, we're so Canadian, right? We're so mousy. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, I kind of do. <laughs> but we're called to have this radical conviction that in Jesus, that we have the ability, through Christ, by the power of the Spirit, to affect a radical transformation in the lives of the people around us. We alone have the one message that a lost and dying world needs to hear. So if you have your Bibles, let's open them up to Mark chapter 2. And let's read a passage from Mark where four men display a radical faith under conviction. I love this the passage here. Mark chapter 2, 1 to 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. That's Jesus. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them, before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Is that not a crazy story? Absolutely crazy story. I love this story. Because what it does is it helps us understand that faith under conviction, faith that truly believes that Jesus is the answer, holds the answer, provides a way forward, brings forgiveness, faith under conviction will do whatever it takes to carry people to him. Because we're convinced only an encounter with Jesus can bring transformation. Authentic faith gives itself to facilitating encounters with Christ a faith that's through the roof is not satisfied until people are brought to the feet of Jesus. There's a number of things that I discover here I want to share with you this morning. And the first is this, the first two points, well, point one, two parts. That way I can get three points in but really have six. The attributes of faith are conviction of this, that faith under conviction is engaged and expectant. I find that in verses 1 through 3. Let me read it for you again. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he preached the word to them, verse 3. And they came. I love, by the way, I love Mark. Mark is kind of the ADD gospel. 
if you read it in the original language, it's a lot of fun because Mark goes, and then this happened, and then this happened. By the way, this happened too. So this is actually what Mark's doing. He goes, you know, it was lots of people there. There was no room even at the door. He was preaching the word. And they came, he says, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. What I discover here is that faith under conviction, faith that believes Jesus holds the only answers to life's problems, are engaged and expectant. See, let me set the scene for you just a little bit. Jesus has returned to Capernaum. It's his home base, northern Israel, on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, And people have heard he's back in town. Now, if you read Mark chapter 1, you discover it's like miracle, 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 miracle. And then Jesus goes away to a lonely place and miracle, miracle, miracle. And now into Mark chapter 2. People are expecting Jesus to do something. A large crowd has gathered around the house that Jesus is in. And we discover in this crowd are two major uh, core groups of people. There is the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious elite. And then there's the, the, the hoi polloi, the general population, the people. Lots of people around there. The religious elite, Luke tells us, uh, he, he writes this in, in uh, chapter 5 of his gospel, the Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village in Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. That's a long way to come. The Pharisees and the teachers of law wanted to discover what Jesus was going to teach, and they made a point of being right in the center of where Jesus was. They took up the, 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 uh, the primary seats, and then all the other people tried to gather in, the crowd. They were the, the congregating curious, people who strained in to hear what Jesus had to say, and in the process of pushing in and trying to figure it out and, and, and hearing, they forgot about everyone else around them. And they were indifferent to the plight of people in need. And into this setting, into this scene, they came. They came. Mark tells us there was no more room, no room even at the door. The place was packed. And for good reason, because uh, Luke again tells us that the power of the Lord was present to heal the sick. The atmosphere was electric, filled with anticipation. It was charged with expectancy. Jesus was preaching. People wanted to hear. Who knew what was going to happen? But the religious elite blocked people from getting close to him. The crowd blocked people from getting close to him. They were all just pressing in, each worried about their own thing. And meanwhile, this band of brothers, these four men, come onto the scene. Mark chapter 2, verse 3. And they came, he says, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. So why don't you catch the contrast that's happening here? Unlike the religious elite who sat ignorant in the place of honor or the crowd who crushed in to capture a glimpse of the teacher, some men, they came. This nameless, faithless, but faithful band of brothers, they came carrying a paralytic. And you discover in the process that they were engaged. There was no sense of drawing attention to themselves, no desire for accolades. We we don't even know who they are, what their names are. We just know that there, there were four of them. And they came with one objective, one goal, one mission. They wanted to make sure that their friend had an encounter with Jesus. They were engaged. These four brothers were engaged. They were determined to carry the needy to Jesus. Now, that may not seem such a big deal in our day and age, right? Because uh, we're very aware of of, uh, people with, with special needs. But in the ancient world, especially in this world, if you were infirmed, you were considered untouchable. 
You would have to put your own reputation on the line if you wanted to work with someone who was paralyzed. See, the idea was that the sick were sick because of some kind of sin in their life, and therefore they were ostracized and outcast. They were unclean and untouchable. And if you were wise, you would just stay clear because you might catch something. Or if you were wise, you better stay clear because you might be associated with them. Hey, he's with sinners. He must be a sinner too. It was way less complicated to to stand away and to just be part of the crowd and, and to ignore the needs of the people around there. But radical faith, faith under conviction, is determined to identify with those in need because it believes that if they could encounter Jesus, there can be transformation in their lives. See, the reason radical faith believes that is because it knows, every one of us should know, that there was once a time when we were needy too, when we were paralyzed or dead in our sin. And Jesus came and identified with us. And he brought salvation into our lives. He breathed life back into us. And now we have the same mission, to go and breathe life into the lives of others. It's the most amazing thing. See, we don't live in the kind of society where the infirmed are ostracized, or maybe we do. There are some situations I guess we do. But nonetheless, we meet people every day who are paralyzed. They just don't know it. There are people who are lost in drugs or broken relationships or, or dead in relationship to God. Their lives are broken. Their lives are hopeless. They know nothing of the love of their Savior. And we pass them by all the time. Don't we? You see the homeless, or you see people who just are lost in mental illness. Our society is full of people that are crippled. And part of our responsibility, my friends, my family, is for us to help figure out how to carry them to Jesus. See, they're all around us. They're our neighbors, they're our grocery clerks, they're our friends, they're our family, they're our colleagues. Every day, if we will open our eyes, we will see people who are spiritually crippled and who need an encounter with Jesus. Matter of fact, we trip over them every day. And the question comes to me, at least, is am I impacted by their plight? Do I care that they're destined for a godless eternity? Or am I moved to try and figure out a way to introduce them to Jesus? I know of a church in Vancouver that um, was, was... was ridiculed within the Christian community because uh, when the pro-life people wanted to hold the placards on the street, if you, you know, right, they would just, they'd have these you know, miles of streets with placards, that kind of idea. The church said, no, we won't do that. And because they wouldn't do that, they were considered to be um, pro-choice, not pro-life. But the elders in that um, congregation thought differently. They said, you know something, if we are going to be pro-life, and if we really believe that abortion is wrong, and harmful, we need to put our money where our mouth is. And so what they did was they bought a $2 million home in Vancouver. They transformed it, hired staff, and it now became a haven for pregnant teens. Most amazing thing. 
So they were staffed by these women who, who believed it was their mission to speak into the lives of these girls, not to convert them, not to change them, but to display the love of Christ in tangible ways and to give them life skills. They would teach them things like how to cook and how to sew and how to shop and you know, how to set up your own household. And these women during their pregnancy, many who were kicked out of their, their, their family homes, went to this haven and during the course of their pregnancy were able to hear about the love of Christ and in a safe environment make a decision about their child, whether they were capable of raising their child or whether adoption was a good option for them. See, that's what faith under conviction does. It doesn't just say, you know some we should hold up a sign that says this is wrong. What it says is we should write a check and get engaged and do ministry to bring about transformation. And that's what we're determined to do here at Central as well. We have all kinds of interesting ways that we're involved in bringing transformation. On Monday mornings, tomorrow morning, uh, tomorrow, right, John? Yes. Um, There will be a group that will gather in our kitchen, and they will cook breakfast for the Ed Center. Every Monday that that school's in. We don't do it when school's not in, right? No. Okay, good. Every Monday, they cook, they cook breakfast, and they, a group of people cook it. Another group of people bring it over and, and distribute it. And then there's people who come, they bring it all back. And then there are people in our congregation who are very, what's the word I would use? Discreet servants. They come and they clean it all up. Why do we do that? Because those kids need to hear about Jesus. That's why. We partner with Cyrus Center because there's an opportunity for, for, uh, for teens that are in trouble to, to discover the love of Christ. Uh, we work with Youth Unlimited, just starting a whole new thing. Right, Ken? We're doing a whole new thing. One of the, one of the, is it the Chilliwack Senior? Middle school. Even worse. <laughs> I, that's why I never became a youth pastor, by the way, because you, you go to jail for murder. <laughs> so it's not good. It's not good. Bless you, John. Uh, in Agassiz, uh, we have now partnered with the, uh, the Kent uh, Elementary School, and we do breakfast there five days a week. Isn't that amazing? Not because we like breakfast, although we do, because we're Mennonite brethren, we like food, but because there's an opportunity for us to manifest the gospel in tangible ways in the lives of kids and families that know nothing of the love of Christ. They have a, a box there now on stage, uh, and it, it's for the, for the Kent Elementary, and every week there's a, people bring the need of the week, and they fill the box. I was there two weekends ago, and it was, it was overflowing. And then they take that, they bring it to the school, and every weekend, people from Central in Agassiz fill backpacks to go home with the kids so they have food over the weekend. See, that's faith in action. It's a willingness to, to sacrificially engage in the lives of people who need to hear the gospel and to do it in relevant ways so we win the right to share Jesus with them. See, it requires personal participation, a willingness to put aside our personal agendas and our personal preferences for the sake of the kingdom, a willingness to invest our money, our time, and our efforts for others, a willingness to go the distance regardless of the objections or the cost or the challenges. See, that's what faith under conviction looks like. Why? Because it is expectant. We don't do it just because we have nothing better to do because we want to be engaged and, and be a bunch of do-gooders. We do it because it actually, we actually believe it brings about transformation. It anticipates that Jesus is ready, willing, and able to heal, to forgive. If you just 
bump a little further back up into the book of Mark, Mark chapter 1, starting at verse 40. Let me read for you what happens here. A leper comes to Jesus, and it says, And and a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. If you will, you can make me clean. Now, look at Jesus' response, the most amazing response. Moved with pity. Moved with pity. Do you know that's how God looks at us when we don't know him? Do you know how God looks at us when we find ourselves in in a helpless state, when we're crippled or we're diseased or we're outside of relationship with him? He's not moved with disgust. He's moved with pity. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, listen to these words, I will be clean. Isn't that amazing? See, here's the thing. These men came expectant that if their friend could encounter Christ, there could be transformation in his life. It anticipates that Jesus is ready, willing, and able to heal. It anticipates that God will act in keeping with his character and his will. It's believing beyond the circumstances or beyond the situation. It's believing or being fixated. Maybe that's a better way to put it. This band of brothers were fixated on the cure, not the diseased. They were convinced that if their friend could encounter Jesus, he could find healing for his soul. See, and that's what faith under conviction believes. It believes that only Jesus is able to affect healing. And more importantly, only Jesus is able to forgive. It's a radical faith that is convinced that only Jesus can bring physical, emotional, but most importantly, spiritual healing. Now, I don't know about you, but I do know about me. And while I have studied this for many years, because I am old and I've read a lot of the Bible, I believe that in my head... Sometimes not with my heart. How about you? But see, this band of brothers knew nothing about head knowledge. They only knew heart knowledge. If I can bring this man to Jesus, regardless of the personal cost, regardless of the stigma that might be attached to me, if I can bring this person to Jesus, Jesus can affect healing in his life. See, faith under conviction is faith that expects that Jesus can and will act. It's faith that banks everything on the hope that we find in Christ. Faith under conviction believes what Luke says. In Luke 5, Luke adds this little phrase into this passage. The power of the Lord was present to heal the sick. There's this air of anticipation and expectancy. Things happen when you bring people to Jesus. God moves when people encounter his son. (coughs) I told you earlier I really love the book of Mark because it's so... um, I call it ADD. Don't tell anyone else I said that, okay? First service, no no two, but let's not tell anyone else because that's not good theology to say Mark is ADD, although I think he is. That's not, by the way, a professional diagnosis. It's just opinion. What I love about this is, and when you read Mark, he just, it's this rapid fire succession of of miracles that he performs. The first miracle that Jesus performs in the book of Mark is he heals a demon-possessed man. Because he wants us to know, God wants us to know, Mark wants us to know, Jesus wants us to know that even the demonic world has no power in the presence of Jesus. 
He heals many sick late into the evening. And if you want proof that Jesus can do the miraculous, we're told he heals Peter's mother-in-law. If that ain't miraculous, what is? He heals a man with leprosy. See, God is active in and through Jesus. And the thing is, he continues to be active in and through Jesus. Jesus was and he is the only hope. Do you believe that? Again, check the pulse of the person next to you. Do you believe that? Yeah. See, that's no less true today than it was then. And sometimes, though, we display this idea that, nah, maybe he's not. What if he doesn't come through? I love what John Wesley, a preacher from the 18th century who was known for revival through England, said. One of his rival preachers came to him and said, um, let me get it right here. He said, I preach the same message as you, but no one comes to faith in Christ. And John Wesley wisely responded, when you preach, you don't actually expect anyone to come to faith, do you? And the preacher said, well, if I'm honest, no, I don't. And Wesley said, we well, see, that's your problem. See, there's this conviction, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the outcome, this conviction at the very core of a radical faith that says, Jesus is the answer. Period. Exclamation mark. Doesn't matter what the outcome is. That's not our problem. Our job isn't to heal people. Our job is to bring people to Jesus who can. Who can bring not only healing, but forgiveness. So the question for me is, do we believe that Jesus has the same power to save, to heal, and to forgive as he did 2,000 years ago? And if we do, do our actions reveal this kind of conviction to others? See, radical faith, faith under conviction, puts belief into action and is determined to carry people to Jesus because it believes Jesus is the only hope for the world. Here's the second thing I discover. Faith under conviction is engaged and expectant, but it's also persistent and creative. Uh, look at verse 3 with me, Mark chapter 2. And, and, the, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had an op made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. These guys are persistent. It's amazing. They're also creative. See, they are resolute in the face of all obstacles. Once they had their friend on the stretcher, there was no stopping them. Luke puts it this way. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, right? They tried all kinds of options. How are we going to get him in? They went up on the roof. They were undeterred. See, faith under conviction is undeterred in the face of obstacles. Because it's rooted in the conviction that an encounter with Jesus brings transformation. And nothing but nothing will get in our way. I mean, it's so easy to find excuses, isn't it, for not pressing through or not persevering? It's like, oh, there's a large crowd, too big, guess I can't get in. You know, maybe we'll try tomorrow. Or, you know, carrying a paralytic is a lot of work and he's really heavy and I'm kind of tired. And, you know, this task is beyond me. God will find somebody else to do it. Or ripping through a roof. I mean, who does that? That's a lot of work. That's messy. Didn't have gloves, you know. 
But, but they are persistent. And not only are they persistent, they're creative as well. See, the obstacle simply becomes an opportunity for a new course of action. Undeterred by the crowd and undeterred by the obstacles, they tear through the roof. They dare to do what is unorthodox for the sake of their conviction. They did whatever is necessary to accomplish their mission. All in. They risked the criticism of the crowd, the disdain of the owner, the disapproval of all who were present. They risked ruining their reputations, and they risked expending their resources all to accomplish their mission. There's this word here that's used for ripping through the roof. It literally means to tear the roof off. They tore it off. They plucked it out. Mark says, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let the bed down on which the paralytic lay. See, there's all manner of obstacles to us accomplishing our desired mission. But most of them can be overcome if we'll just become persistent and creative. I mean, there's doubts, there's families, there's friends, there's fears, there's circumstances. What about our reputation? What if it doesn't work? There's, all, there's a thousand reasons to be dissuaded from sharing the love of Christ, from bringing people to Jesus. But there's an eternity of reasons to embrace an attitude of persistence and creativity. David Platt, who is an American author, pastor, uh, writes this in one of his books. How much do you have to hate someone to not share the gospel with them? How much do you have to hate someone to sit next to someone at work and not proclaim the gospel to them? Those are harsh words, aren't they? But they're real. When we fail to bring the lame and the lost to Jesus, in essence, we express the fullness of our disdain for them. Because we're more worried about our reputation or our resources or the obstacles. But I discovered in reading this passage and reading some of the works around this passage that radical faith embraces a Matthew eleven twelve attitude. Matthew eleven twelve says this. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven is being forcefully advancing and forceful men and women lay hold of it. Isn't that a great passage? We're called to lay hold of the kingdom. A faith that believes that Jesus is the only way will do whatever it takes to lead people to him. Is my point coming through? Those who really want to see transformation will give their all, despite the obstacles. How badly do you want someone to encounter Christ? That's the question. And how radically do you believe the gospel? And then it's a determination to find a way. Here's the third thing I discovered, that faith under conviction is engaged and expectant. It's persistent and creative. It's also sacrificial and undeterred. Mark chapter 2, verse 4 says this, When they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and they made an opening, and they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Or I love how Luke frames it. They went up on the roof and lowered him his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. I love that. See, their determination was sacrificial. It was a very costly adventure. It cost them their reputation, their time, their resources, their strength, possibly even physical harm. Can you imagine what it'd be like? You're, you're having friends over for dinner, and all of a sudden, someone starts clawing at your roof. You hear, like, you hear a hi-ho running outside, and all of a sudden, poof, the bucket comes in and tears apart the roof. Are you impressed? 
right? Oh, this, this would be fun. Let's see what happens, <laughs> right? The owner must have been horrified. Can you imagine the elite sitting there and the dust from the roof falling on them? Right? They're, they're, they're clay roofs with, with twigs and all, all kinds of stuff fell down. Imagine the shock as the stretcher starts to appear and it lands right in front of Jesus. You see, here's the thing. This was a sacrificial act because someone had to pay to have the roof repaired. This band of brothers dared to do the costly, to do the lavish, to demonstrate their conviction about Jesus and their commitment to the one in need. They laid it all on the line, holding nothing back for the sake of bringing the needy to Jesus. And that's a great lesson for us. It's a lesson of what it takes to bring people to Jesus. It's an all-in investment. Can't do it part-time. Can't do it when it's convenient. It needs to be the very modus operandi of our lives. I wonder if that can be said of our commitment to the kingdom. And I mean the kingdom capital K, not the kingdom little K, my house. I've been a pastor a long time. And what I've come to discover is that the church lacks no resource to accomplish what God wants to do. The problem is we don't give it. We're too fixated on ourselves. And we've lost sight of the lost. We tend to give little and spend a lot. A lot on ourselves. What happens if we were to reverse that trend? I'm not the lead pastor anymore, so I can say this to you because you can fire me. Well, actually, you can't. The elders can. <clears throat> Folks, our budget will be $2.2 million. There is not a reason in the world we can't meet that and exceed that by at least double. If we were to give at a level that says, Jesus, I believe in the mission you've called us to. And no guilt. Please hear no guilt in that. It's just reality. God has given us every resource that we need to reach the eastern Fraser Valley with the gospel for the glory of God and for the good of all people. I can say that. I'm not the lead. But we're cheap. We are. And I don't mean just with money, with our time and our willingness to live sacrificially for the sake of, of people who are lost. Anyways. They were undeterred, talked about that. They, they, they set the man down right in front of Jesus. I like what Luke 5 says. When they went up the roof, they lowered his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. The word that's used here is epiprothane. In other words, in first place. And it's meant to be this, this word picture that the most important thing we can do is bring people who need to encounter Jesus and put them right in front. Epiprothane. What amazes me in all of this is that this passage reflects what God's called us to do. We are called to, be, to live with faith under conviction that we're to reach the eastern Fraser Valley for the glory of God. That's a big mission, but not too big if God's in it.
Here's the final thing that I'll just share with you, which I think is the most important thing, is that radical faith, faith under conviction, is centered on Jesus. Mark 2, verse 5, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that a crazy statement? When Jesus saw whose faith? Paralytics? No. Whose faith? This band of brothers who were under the conviction that if they could help this man have an encounter with Jesus, something would happen. When, they, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. See, this band of brothers had no pre- preconceived notions of what would happen. They had no guarantee of what Jesus would do. All they knew, all of their hopes, all of their faith centered on the one true certain reality that their friend needed an encounter with Jesus and that Jesus would be responsible for the outcome. But here's the thing. Their faith facilitated forgiveness. That's amazing. That means my faith, your faith, our faith collectively can bring transformation in the lives of people who need to discover the forgiveness of God. I want to be clear, really, really clear. Our faith is not, we're not the authors of forgiveness, only Jesus is. But we are called to be the agents of forgiveness. I love how 2 Corinthians 5 frames it. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. And here's our appeal. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. We're called, you and me are called, we're empowered, we're commissioned to be agents of God's grace. Is that not a marvelous thing? This band of brothers simply brought this man to Jesus, did whatever it took to get him there, placed him epiprostane right in front of Jesus, and trusted Jesus for the outcome. See, it's good for us to realize that what people ultimately need is salvation. We may want to see a marriage restored, but people need an encounter with Jesus. We may want to see people kick a habit, they need an encounter with Jesus. We may want to see people healed, what they need is an encounter with Jesus. Because only when they encounter Jesus will they receive ultimate healing, which is salvation from their sins. And sometimes God, in his grace, addresses physical affirmities too. As a matter of fact, in this context, God brings healing, not for the sake of healing, but to authenticate his ability to forgive sins. What I love about this band of brothers is they decide to tootle off. You never hear anything more about them. The spotlight shifts and focus on Jesus. And you allow Jesus to gain the glory. It's the last you hear of them. See, bringing people to Jesus provides an opportunity for, for Jesus to manifest his glory. Bringing people to Jesus provides an opportunity to authenticate faith. Bringing people to Jesus provides an opportunity for healing and forgiveness to take place. We're not responsible for the outcome, but we are responsible to be his ambassadors. And to live with faith under conviction, a conviction that only Jesus saves, only Jesus heals, only Jesus can heal the paralytic, only Jesus brings the dead back to life. And so we ask the question, where are you in this story? Are you part of the religious elite that just loves to sit at the feet of Jesus and 
you know, lap it up and maybe argue about texts, but you're oblivious to the needs of people around you? Are you part of the crowd? You're so desperate to get in and hear what's going on, but you're not even aware that you're not called to be part of the crowd. You're called to be part of the commission. Maybe you're a paralytic and you need someone to carry you to Jesus. Love to do that today. See, folks, here's the thing. We are called, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to band together and to become a determined group of people who will do all that we can to proclaim Jesus, to bring people to Jesus. We're called to be engaged and expectant, persistent and creative, sacrificial and undeterred, centered on Jesus. We've embraced a really crazy, radical endeavor here at Central. But not because we're weird, although we are a little. Because we believe that God in his grace, for whatever reason, has poured out his favor on this place and in the process has given us a commission, a call, a mission, a ministry to reach the eastern Fraser Valley with the gospel for the glory of God and the good of all people. And my, my plea with you, would you partner with us in that? Would you give yourself to being part of this mission in prayer, in service, with practical support? Give yourself to being one of the band of brothers and sisters who serves Jesus above all else. Because, you see, the thing is, he came to serve us. A good segue into communion. Today we'll celebrate communion. And this is the, the bread here and the, the juice, the wine, is here to remind us that the ultimate mission was the mission that the Father sent the Son on to redeem us. He was under the conviction that we needed to be saved and he came and he lived among us and he taught us and then he displayed for us what true sacrifice was. He gave up his life on a cross he shed his blood so that we might be redeemed. And then he's called us to be his ambassadors so that we might bring redemption to others. Let me read the passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we want to invite you, invite the service to come forward. We want to invite you to celebrate communion. If you know Jesus, please feel free to come up. If you can't, people will come around and serve you. And as you do, remember that Jesus fulfilled his mission to redeem you. And he now calls us to fulfill our mission to bring redemption to others. Let's pray. Father, for your grace, we are so thankful. Jesus, for your sacrifice, we have no words. As we remember what you've done for us, would you also spark in our hearts a new desire to live for you in the fullness of faith under conviction that if we bring people to you, you will affect healing in their lives, transformation 
forgiveness of sins, life where there's now death. Would you make us bold to live in the truth of this mission you have put us on? And would you find us faithful in the process? We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.